Good morning. I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to Hudson Institute for this uh, conference, uh, and also a pleasure to welcome our C-SPAN audience, uh, since C-SPAN will be covering our conference, uh, gavel to gavel as it were. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome them from across the country to this event as well. The United States and Japan are about to enter a new chapter in their relationship. Uh, our alliance with, the, with Japan, our oldest democratic ally in Asia, now goes back 70 years. It's a relationship uh, which has been founded on common political principles, common cultural and economic principles, but also common strategic interests. And it'll be part of what this conference will be about, is giving you a look at the new chapter and the new directions that this uh, new chapter will involve and why it is so important and where it will be directed for the future. This is a, uh, a, a distinguished cast that I've, we've put together here for today to discuss these aspects of, uh, of U.S.-Japan relations. Uh, it's one in which is so action-packed, in fact, that uh, my co-organizer, uh, Louis Libby, and I decided that it would probably be best not to have two opening statements from conference organizers, but to be, limit ourselves to one. And so we uh, drew straws, and I lost. I mean, I won. Um, so I want to keep these remarks brief because we have our very distinguished keynote speaker uh, about to begin as well. But I did want to spend a couple minutes talking about why this conference is so important and why we've assembled the people and the personnel and the panels that we did. Now, I said a minute ago that we're about to enter a new chapter in U.S.-Japan relations. Now, this is a relationship which now does go back to the uh, days after World War II. It's involved close cooperation in a number of areas. Close cooperation, in fact, to a degree that has developed what I like to call a special relationship between the United States and Japan, a special relationship to match that which the United States built with Great Britain in the First and Second World Wars and which sustains itself today through the organs of NATO and through our bilateral relations. I think something similar has taken place here in, in, with regard to Japan over these decades, and we've seen it in terms of our cooperation uh, in, in strategic areas, the building of our formal alliance and uh, defense tr treaties. We've seen it in the area also of, uh, uh, of intelligence cooperation and the ways in which both U.S. and Japanese intelligence agencies have worked tirelessly in order to help to protect and secure uh, both countries. Uh, in the over these over these past decades we've seen it in terms of military cooperation with us and japanese military forces working together exercising together in order to promote uh, mutual national security and in order to promote strategic interests of both countries well the new chapter which is coming 
the new chapter that's coming is going to be in the area of cooperation in terms of defense trade and also defense systems co-development and co-production. And a whole new horizon is now going to open up in terms of scientific and technological cooperation between these two countries in ways in which are going to be very difficult to foresee just how far and how wide and how important that cooperation is going to be. Now, from this point of view, we find ourselves also with an important moment in history for this new chapter to begin. We see it, first of all, in terms of a new proactive defense posture that has been assumed by the government of Japan under Prime Minister Abe, which includes, as in, it includes uh, changes in Japan's export policy regarding defense articles uh, and defense systems. Uh, the full range of possibilities and direction for that new export policy are sketched out for you in the report, which we're distributing here this morning, uh, a Hudson Institute report uh, that we've put together on this important change in Japan's policy, uh, and which I'm going to say a few words about just before lunch to help get you uh, excited about the report and understand what, what the direction that it takes and where it's going. This, this is the big change that's happened on Japan's part, to which will be an enormous advantage and create great opportunities in terms of U.S.-Japan technological cooperation on the defense front. The other big change, however, has come from the United States, and that has been the unveiling in, in 2014 of the so-called third offset strategy and of the technologies which are seen as being integral to that new it, new system, new way of thinking about how we fight and how we defend ourselves and secure ourselves in a changing world. Uh, that third offset strategy depends upon, is rests upon a series of technologies ranging from cyber and artificial intelligence and big data to uh, high energy lasers, hypersonic weaponry and microwave systems. Uh, the development of what we can think of as sixth-generation technologies. And these technologies are going to be important, not just in terms of uh, the defense of the United States and part of our strategic posture, but also the strategic posture of our allies, including Japan. And here we see an important, an important moment arising in terms of U.S.-Japan uh, defense trade and, def and defense technology cooperation. For many years, the prime emphasis in terms of U.S.-Japan uh, cooperation in this arena has been in order to secure Japan's national uh, interests. Uh, how do we help to protect Japan? How do we make Japan strong and secure? With the third offset strategy, however, we can see a possibility for U.S.-Japan cooperation in the technological sphere, which promotes the security of the United States as well in which both allies benefit mutually from their work together on these systems and on these new kinds of technologies and new ways of thinking of how to apply existing technologies to security concerns in the future. We've already seen some elements of this new cooperation take place already in areas, for example, with regard to missile defense, which we'll be talking about this, after, talking about this morning. But the other range of possibilities 
ranging from cyber and uh, high-energy weaponry all the way to information warfare domain. All of these are also going to be new and exciting areas for us to get involved with, and which this conference will help us to understand the parameters and dimensions. Now, for a conference of this sort, it's important to strike the right keynote. And for that reason, you need the right keynote speaker. And from my point of view, there is no one who I think will be able to provide that keynote better than our next speaker, Admiral uh, Yoji Koda. Admiral Koda is a figure recognized on both sides of the Pacific as a leading expert in the relationship between the United States and Japan and in their mutual security interests. Uh, Admiral Koda, Vice Admiral Koda, is a graduate of the Japan Defense Academy uh, and the uh, Joint Maritime Self-Defense Forces Staff College and of the United States Naval War College. His, he, as a surface officer, he took command of the JS Sawayuki, Destroyer Flotilla 3, and Fleet Escort Force at Sea. His shore duties included Director General for Plans and Operations, Maritime Staff, as well as Commandant of the JMSDF Sasebo District. He retired from the Navy as Commander-in-Chief, Self-Defense Fleet, in 2008, but that hasn't slowed him down. Then he was invited to the Asia Center, Harvard University, as a research fellow in Chinese naval strategy. He's a proficient writer on maritime affairs and military history. And he has served as an advisor to the National Security Secretariat, the government of Japan, uh, until this, uh, this coming, until last March. Uh, this is a man who I think understands the broader contours of the issues that we're going to address and what its greatest implications are. And therefore, it is my distinct pleasure and my distinct honor to welcome Admiral Koda uh, to the podium. Admiral Koda. I forget my secret weapon, water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for kind introduction. And also, I'm not quite confident about my role as a keynote speaker in this, you know, the very important the dialogue. And I'm not a PhD holder, not a professor at the colleges, just simply the former lazy, sloppy sailor with 17 years at sea experience, pretty long. When I took the command of the, all the surface forces in Japan, I spent about 200 days at sea watching my subordinate one-star admirals. Some of them are reliable, some of them. Are they really a warfighter or not? That was my responsibility. <coughs> and also the just quick history. I entered the Defense Academy in 1968. When that happened, in Japan, one, there was one saying that any young man entering Japanese auto industry or military self-defense force 
a kind of silly man who were entering the business with no future. Please think about that. 1968, even the Toyota, no export to the United States. In Japan, Sony, Panasonic, or the shipbuilding industry, or the still the leading industries, or world leading industries, and Japanese automobile was very tiny industry with no hope. 50 years later, what happens? Toyota has become the world leading automobile company together with Honda and several other Japanese companies. And self-defense forces until mid-1990s, one-third of Japanese called us a illegitimate child in terms of the constitution. But after that, supported by the end of, of victory of the Cold War, we are formally recognized as the, the, the real kids of Japan. And I think, especially in the U.S.-Japan alliance, self-defense, role of self-defense force is be becoming more and more important. So when I look back my 67 years history, I really feel the change of the world. And today uh, I'm going to speak my experience on the U.S.-Japan alliance, especially from the viewpoint of the science and technology. As I mentioned to you, I'm, I was good at mathematics and the physics, but not physician or the mathematicians, mathematicians. So my capacity to talk about the, my subject today is pretty limited, but I think the, the, the real thoughts of the frontline sailors. So you know, please give me some of your you know, patience on my the stories. And today I'm going to speak mainly three subjects. One is the Chinese A2AD strategy, and second is the role of the Japan-US alliance, and third is the what could be our future course of action, bilateral future course of action. So those are my th three subjects. And also, the, this time, this trip, I have been on the road already for eight days. Two days in good Rome, and two days also under good Rome. And the last day, last day, or last place to stay is the Washington DC. My sixth visit this time, this year. And perhaps my, you know, the already eroding brain are deteriorated by good Italian foods and the good French wines. So perhaps something today I, I say are wrong or difficult to understand. If that happens, please stop me and please raise your hand and ask me any questions, okay? Okay. And first, uh, let me speak the Chinese A2AD. Chinese A2AD strategy has been attracting the world attention since mid-19, oh, sorry, the 2000s. Though there are several different interpretations and understandings of the A2AD, it is clear that the A2AD is a basic rationale and backbone to justify Chinese military buildups during the last two decades and will remain so in foreseeable future. One key thought 
of A2AD is an estimate that PLA in next 20 years will still be inferior to U.S. forces in most of the warfare areas. So PLA developed strategy with completely different angles to focus on U.S. forces' Achilles heels and at the same time to concentrate PLA's major resources on specific U.S. forces' vital points where the U.S. forces expose their fundamental weakness. For China and PLA, by showing their military superiority over U.S. forces, even very limited areas, to vast majority of Americans, China strongly hopes to weaken the USA's intent to be involved in and to, to intervene in regional security power games. Thus, without fighting against mighty U.S. forces, China will be able to keep U.S. forces out of the area and to establish its national objective and monopolistic sphere of, inter in sphere of influence in the region. And we call this one a new Chinese dynasty in the 21st century. The area could stretch from the Western Pacific, East and South China Sea, to the Indian Ocean. And these areas are widely referred as the Indo-Pacific in recent days. Then let me touch briefly upon the significance of the U.S.-Japan alliance. It is quite clear that security and stability of the Indo-Pacific region after the end of the Cold War have been maintained by U.S. forces stationed in the area and those deployed to the area. There are U.S. forces stationed in South Korea. However, the forces are the dedicated forces to deter North. So the U.S. forces in the South, South Korea have significance to deter the North Korea, but few values to contribute U.S. regional and global strategies in its force deployment. US, U.S. government confronting assertive activities of China that are supported by a 280 strategy has set a rebalancing policy that focuses more on the Indo-Pacific region. And U.S. Pacific Command has also introduced an access assurance strategy that support the rebalancing policy. At the same time, Japan, whose geopolitical location and well-functioning world-class JSDF with extremely high capabilities to support U.S. forces has been another key element in the new security framework to counter A2AD strategy. Another reason for this is the fact that there are no major full-scale U.S. bases in the region from Japan to African coast and even to the Norfolk. U.S. bases in Changi, Singapore and British Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean are strategically important but are too small to be full-scale bases that support the real U.S. strategy. In this context, U.S. bases with sufficient fuel and ammunition storage in Japan 
are the only bases that support the U.S. policy and strategy. Now, let me briefly cover on the essence of the Chinese A2AD. The largest obstacle in Chinese path to the national objectives are USA and U.S. forces that are able to create favorable situation toward the USA unilaterally by its own capabilities. That takes advantage of its global reach and widespread alliance networks. Similarly, it is natural for China and PLA to set a clear goal to be a second nation with global reach. China first tried to establish and enhance its capability to influence in China's surrounding nations and waters as the first step. In this context, China needs to weaken and eventually stop U.S. presence in the region. That is the hardest obstacle to China. China's A2AD is a product that is tailored to realize above-mentioned tenets focusing on U.S. forces. In other words, A2AD is a strategy to deter and deteriorate Americans' mind to go and intervene conflicts in this region by showing Chinese robust capabilities to annihilate U.S. forces operating in and approaching to the region. So A2AD is a rationale for PLA's, PLA's force build-ups to realize above-mentioned concept. Core tenets of the rationale are the thought that by building capable PLA forces, that will be able to destroy U.S. forces in mid-Pacific and other surrounding areas. China will eventually stop U.S. regional presence in peacetime, prohibit U.S. forces from intervening to regional conflict in crisis, and deter U.S. forces in times of the military clash or war. And there are two main elements in Chinese force building up under a 2 AD strategy. One is the Chinese capability to attack and destroy U.S. forces advancing to the region. China intends to build military capability to attack U.S. forces approaching from Konas or Hawaii to the region at the distant waters from China's mainland. And there are three main categories of military assets to realize this concept. What are they? One is the anti-ship ballistic missile. And second is the submarine force. And the third is the capability to counter U.S. forces' domain dominance. I don't have to refer to the first twos, but let me mention briefly about the, the U.S. domain dominance. One of the elements of the U.S. forces being overwhelmingly superior military in the world is the dominance of space, cyber, air, and maritime domains, and its superior C4ISR capabilities. All of these areas where U.S. forces have superiority are collectively designated as multiple domain in my speech. In other words, if all or even major parts of those capabilities would be disabled in a future war with the USA, U.S. forces will not function as originally designed. Rather, U.S. forces without those capabilities would be just sitting ducks for easy finishing. 
fully understanding this Achilles heel of U.S. forces and to seize upon those strong advantages but weaknesses as well of its adversary. China has been developing various capabilities to focus upon these weak points and to disable these capabilities of the U.S. forces. PLA, realizing its inferiority from U.S. forces, will avoid all-out head-on attacks against both well-protected and distant Washington, D.C., or Hawaii. Those are the brains. And robust frontline fighting forces, those are the muscles. Instead, China will concentrate initial attacks on U.S. forces' multiple domain dominance mechanisms, which would be parallelized as networks of nerve connecting U.S. forces' brain and muscle. In other words, U.S. forces with brain and muscle alive would lose its nerve networks if this PLA's initial attack works. Thus, once overwhelming U.S. military will easily be groups of non-functioning military units of easy target and games. If this attempt would be successful, PLA will have a capability to annihilate U.S. forces without fighting fears and bloody combats. Thus, China has been deploying several military assets and capabilities to fully meet these, these objectives, including EMP, electromagnetic pulse, anti-satellite cyber attacks, and destructions of the seabed fiber cables networks, and others. These are the Chinese capability to try to destroy, try to destroy incoming U.S. forces. Another one is the Chinese capability to destroy already deployed U.S. forces. Just like the U.S. forces advancing to this area, U.S. forces stationed or already deployed in this region are also objective of the A2AD. And additionally, U.S. logistics functions in Japan, as I mentioned, such as vast stockpile of fuel and ammunitions for ready and frontline use, are indispensable for U.S. strategy and operations. From China's viewpoint, these support facilities and infrastructures in Japan also the ones that must be neutralized at the initial, initial phase of the war. In this context, these support functions in Japan are prominent objectives of A2AD by no means. In addition to them, Japan itself, including its social infrastructures and JSDF, are also objective of the, of the Chinese strategy. And in this context, there are three main categories of military assets to realize this concept. And namely, these Chinese maneuver are categorized as the attack on Japan. And what are they? Chinese ballistic missile and cruise missiles. The second is the potential sabotage by special forces in core infrastructures in Japan. And the third is the Chinese island assault and seizure to control strategic choke points. Now, I think we realize the Chinese strategic asset that would counter against U.S. and Japan. So what are countermeasures that Japan should, Japan and the USA should take? 
This is the second question, next question. And as you know, A2AD is not a operational plan, no operational concept, but a rationale to deteriorate and deter intents of the Americans by showing aforementioned PLA's capabilities to destroy and annihilate some part of the U.S. forces in the region. For Japan and the USA, the two nations must build their military capabilities to fully cope with PLA's future military challenges under A2AD. So first set of the countermeasure is the U.S.-Japan capability to counter Chinese capability to attack incoming U.S. forces. This capability is tailored against U.S. incoming forces. So Japan and the USA jointly developed the capability to destroy Chinese anti-ship ballistic missile at sea. So I designate this one the fleet anti-ship ballistic missile defense, not simple BMD, fleet anti-ship ballistic missile defense at sea. And second is the capability to destroy Chinese submarine force. And the third is the capability to counter Chinese domain denial capability. With regard to our capabilities to counter China's domain denial at present, there are almost no effective, effective countermeasures to meet every element of the PLA's challenges in this area. In this context, unlike BMD, that is the success story of the U.S.-Japan joint development, all bilateral effort in the domain denial would be a, would be attempts starting from zero or new frontier for Japan and the USA. So there will be the hard time. Even so, our capabilities to counter PLA's domain denial will be indispensable and key elements for our future military posture. Japan and the USA should launch new bilateral initiative to jointly develop these capabilities at the earliest opportunity. And second category is our countermeasures against Chinese capability to destroy the U.S. forces already deployed and Japan itself. So core elements of Japan-USA joint posture in this category are protection of Japan itself that had been supporting nodes for U.S. forces in the region. To be com concrete, Homeland defense and the protections of U.S. forces in our region are the capability required to meet this objective. And what are they? The first is the ballistic, ballistic missile defense and, more importantly, cruise missile defense capability. And second is the defense capability against Chinese special sabotage by Chinese special operation forces in Japan's mainland. And the third is the defense of our southwestern island that holds, hold, holds Chinese choke points, strategic choke points. And, and as mentioned before, PLA will build new capability to invade and seize some of the key islands in southwestern island, not Senkaku, okay, where strategic choke points are located. And there should be new initiatives for Japan and USA to 
develop. That's, that's the cost and resource imposing strategy. This is, of course, my idea. But China has been actively and aggressively building PLA, whose capabilities are sufficient enough to realize A2AD for the last two decades. Yes, it is true that PLA is growing rapidly and substantially and becoming one of the world-class militaries. At the same time, however, PLA is not a 10-meter or 35-feet-tall giant man in Galver's travels. Like other militaries, PLA has many problems and insufficient areas too. PLA's capability in general are estimated to be still inferior to those of the U.S. forces alone and Japan-U.S. forces combined. By fully taking this reality into account, there are several key initiatives for Japan-USA to realize. In addition to developing Japan-USA combined counter-A2AD capabilities that I mentioned just before, there are many new areas of military operations where JSDF and U.S. forces together should take advantage of Chinese inferior areas. And first, let me mention the new JSDF, or Japan Alone Initiative. That is operationally offensive capability under long-lasting strategically defensive posture. What does it mean? Japan, in theory, is able to have the same strike capability, both tactically and strategically, against China under current pacifist constitution my interpretation. Let me explain a little deeper. For JSDF, it is widely focuses on today China's Achilles tendons. Oh, sorry. For JSDF, if JSDF wisely focuses on today's China's Achilles heels of its slow dependence for its economic, economic activities and prosperities, JSDF's capability to interrupt and distract Chinese slugs will be another deterrence power for this purpose. This is the one thing JSDF alone can do that. The second, JSDF's capability to destroy and sink PLA, PLA Navy's capital ships, which will be a Chinese pride. In other words, aircraft carrier or carrier Z, will surely deter China. Loss of one carrier of PLA Navy in the future will be a killer punch to its leaders, Communist Party, the government, and more seriously, and importantly, to overwhelming number of Chinese peoples. Last but not least, JSDF's mining capabilities, especially seabed mines with state-of-the-art technologies to be developed, deployed in JSDF's operations in choke point controls and harbor blockade, will be another initiative with large potential to impose huge cost and labor to China. There are many others of this kind, and those JSCDF capabilities are the ones that Japan will be able to build under current pacifist constitution. Second is the bilateral effort. The first is the capability to disable PLA's high-tech depend, uh, high-tech dependent systems. In addition to joint measures mentioned before, such as fleet anti-ballistic missile defense, 
There are several more bilateral initi initiatives that both Japan and USA should realize by, by focusing A2AD's shortcomings and unfocused area. First thing to consider is the backside of a coin of PLA's modernization. A backside of a coin of the PLA's modernization. It has been a common knowledge that PLA has been trying to catch up the best advanced U.S. forces in the shortest period. Like U.S. forces, it is unavoidable for PLA as a very sophisticated and capable military to be a fully high-tech dependence military or even a high-tech driven military. Another way of saying this is that the better and more capable military PLA wants to be, the more and heavier dependence on high-tech equipment and systems PLA is. So for Japan and USA, developing capabilities to physically destroy and clandestinely neutralize PLA's high-tech system will be extremely effective measures to reduce PLA's fighting capabilities. Such capabilities include attack on PLA's space-based system, digital networks, C4ISR systems, and other domain awareness systems. And second in the joint area is the capability to distract PLA's key bases in coastal areas of China's mainland and islands. Am I provocative? Strategic strike on core military bases of China, such as Nimbo near Shanghai, or Yalong Bay in Hainan Islands, Woody Islands in Parcel, and seven fake artificial islands in the Spratlys, will cause serious impact on PLA's future strategic planning. Defending these key islands and bases will be extremely difficult tasks for PLA too. For China, like Imperial Japan in the Pacific Theater in the late, in the Second World War II, uh, Second World War in late 1943 to 1945. Protecting islands are extremely difficult task for PLA or any military. And vast amount of resources allocation for this purpose will be inevitable. There are these fortified islands on Chinese coastline and the South China Sea are key elements for the Chinese strategic planning against U.S. forces. So China and PLA will surely, will surely face more difficult and serious problems to allocate more resources and cost for the protection of the bases and islands. Japan was really exhausted and attrition in this land warfare Island warfare really killed Japan in the second half of the World War II. So this is one of the universal lessons that military should examine. And the third is the high-tech superiority. This is also a joint effort. In general, it is all right to estimate that Japan and USA have techno technological superiority over China in, in many of military applications. We should not underestimate Chinese capabilities, and PLA has been catching up 
to our level quickly. But technological inferiority will be PLA's future, will be PLA's future disturbing and dragging factors for its modernization. In this regard, if China keeps on trying to catch up, catch up Japan and the USA in technological field, it is crystal clear that substantial resource allocation from all, all social sectors will be necessary for China. In this context, Japan and USA must take all possible measures to maintain high-tech high superiority over Japan and well-organized high-tech transfer control, practically one form of technology containment policy toward China, must be developed and enacted at the earliest opportunity. This is something I hope not yet discussed, but two governments will, will start the negotiation at the earliest opportunity. And those technological superiority is something similar with one president, that President Ronald Reagan's overwhelming superior high-tech oriented but merely conceptual 1983 SDI or Star Wars initiative forced then-Soviet Union to give up endless West-East arms race and eventually brought the Cold War to an end by the victory of the Western side. This is, I think, one of the precedents we need to learn. And here, let me examine what are the key technologies for Japan and the USA to cope with A2AD. And there are several. The first are the general technologies, space technologies, use of space, or attack against space, or defense from the attack, and backup systems in the space under attack. Or underworld warfare technologies, or C4ISR related, or unmanned vehicle, UAV, USV, and UV technologies that should not be seized by a bad friend. No joke? Sorry. And counter EMD, EMP technologies. China is certain, and they are serious about use the EMD, EMP, for example. In NATO, if either side uses EMP, both sides will be blacked out. But in Asia, China would use the, the detonation in the Japanese island, south of Tokyo. US and Japanese force will be backed out. They are safe. China see an overwhelming advantageous position in EMD, EMP. We should not forget. And then second is the more concrete weapon technologies. Directed energy technologies, laser and electromagnetic or hypersonic vehicle technology, and BMD and CMD. CMD, saying is easy, but realizing is very difficult. And fleet, anti-ship anti ballistic missile defense posture, and SW capabilities to cope with newer submarines, Chinese submarines, and new mine technologies, and electronic attack technology, including those in microwaves. So there are many. So those are the technologies U.S. and Japan has, have to identify and to start cooperation to maintain the technology superiority over China. And let me conclude. An objective of Chinese AT is to keep U.S.A. or U.S. forces out of the region without fighting in all security environment 
from peacetime to war and to establish unilateral control over the region as a single hegemonic power. China's rationale to realize and establish its objective is to build tailored military capabilities that is good enough to annihilate some part of the U.S. forces in this area under certain conditions and to deteriorate U.S. leadership and American people's determination to maintain its military presence in this region and to intervene some security incident when necessary. And it is true that the ATAD is well-developed concept and we fall into an illusion that the more we examine the tenets of the A2AD, the stronger sense of helplessness we may be trapped in. But important thing for Japan and USA to do is to jointly develop effective and functioning countermeasures, which were just discussed here or today, against Chinese, China's strategy, and prepare our militaries for Chinese A2AD without any flinch. Reality of the military balance between the two, Japan and the USA and China, now and foreseeable future, are still on our side by a large margin. Even in current posture between JSDF and US forces, significance of strategic strike capabilities by US forces under Alliance mission sharing, sphere, spear and shield. is overwhelming enough to deter PLA's adventurism. Similarly, strategic defense capabilities and supporting capabilities of JSDF to US forces are also strong and clear enough to deter Chinese op offensive operations. For Japan and USA that are facing Chinese assertive and provo provocative act actions every day and future too, it is indispensable and necessary to develop concrete strategic casting and mission sharing, which takes real nature and tenets of Chinese aid to aid into account. In this bilateral process, together with the enhancement of interoperability between fighting units of two forces, joint development of high technologies, that will be new key elements to bring Japan and USA more firmly together than before. And this new cooperation will successfully maintain high-tech superiority over China. If joint and bilateral attempt between Japan and USA will, be, USA will be realized, our two nations will be able to establish functioning capability to neutralize China's A2AD and to deteriorate and deter Chinese adventurism by imposing high cost and huge resource allocation that China, China cannot sustain. Finally, let me conclude my speech by saying that a simple and single secret for successful Japan-USA bilateral technology cooperation is complementarily, not competitively, that fully exercise each other's advantages will be okay. Thank you very much.
I um, promised you that it's an action-packed conference, and so uh, I think what I need we need to do is to move on directly to our next panel, uh, to, uh, to Andrew Krepinevich and to Bill Schneider. Uh, I want to thank, however, Admiral Koda for his remarks and uh, for his insightful and I think even he will agree, at times provocative, but always illuminating discussion. Thank you again, Admiral. Now, in my opening remarks, I mentioned the third offset strategy uh, and mentioned also my own firm conviction that that third offset strategy of the Pentagon will provide one of the important building blocks and connective tissue for our future U.S.-Japan defense technological cooperation. But let's find out a little bit more about that third offset strategy from uh, two insiders, as it were, uh, who understand and in many cases have helped to formulate that third offset strategy and its many facets and implications. And so it's my great pleasure to introduce our next panel, uh, with, who will be uh, Andrew Krepinevich, who's Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, which he founded in 1995. He assumed his position in March 2016 after serving for 21 years as president of this premier Washington think tank. His service at CSBA was preceded by 21 years as its president, uh, 20, I'm sorry, with 21 year career in the U.S. Army. He's also served in the Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment and on the personal staff of three Secretaries of Defense. He currently serves as Chairman of the Chief of Naval Operations Executive Panel and on the Advisory Council of Business Executives for National Security. Our other panelist uh, is Dr. William Schneider, my colleague here at the Hudson Institute and also President of the International Planning Services Incorporated. Uh, which is a Washington-based international trade and finance advisory firm. Now, uh, Dr. Schneider was formerly Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science and Technology in the 1980s. He served as Associate Director for National Security and International Affairs at the Office of Management and Budget prior to being nominated as Undersecretary. And he served as Advisor to the U.S. government in several capacities. I would even add almost endless capacities uh, as his understanding both of military and scientific uh, affairs is, I think, unparalleled in this town uh, and, in, uh, the, and, and in, the, in the think tank world. He also served as chairman of the President's General Advisory Committee on Arms Control and Disarmament and, served on the de and has served on the Defense Science Board since 2011. Uh, 2001. Gentlemen, uh, my question to you is, as we get in this discussion and, and get underway in thinking about these questions, is uh, how did this third offset strategy come to be formulated, and how do we see it shaping up as something that will end up being more than just simply another sort of uh, empty slogan or catchphrase that circulates in the Pentagon for a number of years as what happened with, for example, transformation? and really becomes a solid, grounded, and concrete new way of thinking about how we will fight in the, in the, in the sixth generation. 
Well, I'm sure we both have uh, uh, views on this, but uh, I, I think the third offset has uh, has a concept. Whether it retains that name or uh, some other, is uh, reflects uh, the uh, the uh, way in which the U.S. adapts to uh, it, the technology that it needs for national defense uh, to the uh, threats posed. Uh, U.S. has historically had a strong predisposition to using technology to solve uh, uh, problems, whether it was in uh, a civil society or with defense. We've always had a, uh, a labor shortage in the U.S. We've always preferred uh, using technology uh, as a way of mitigating uh, these kind of uh, shortfalls. And, and uh, the, of course, the modern history of this concept is uh, rooted in the uh, uh, Soviet-American rivalry in the Cold War, where the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II left <clears throat> the former Soviet Union with a huge uh, pr uh, uh, manpower presence in, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and uh, uh, that pr uh, offered them a, a powerful advantage in conducting conventional military operations because these forces could be concentrated uh, by the introduction of uh, short-range theater nuclear systems in the uh, 50s and 60s. <clears throat> we were able to force the uh, uh, Soviet first echelon forces to uh, disperse and diminish their effectiveness as a, a powerful conventional force. But this uh, capability quickly lost its credibility as it became somewhat self-deterring when you were trying to shoot 30 rounds of uh, uh, nuclear artillery uh, per day for 30 days. It was uh, uh, it didn't seem uh, very credible. Uh, uh, and that evolved into the need to to deal with the uh, the uh, the ultimate problem, which was the R Russian second and third generation uh, capabilities. And uh, uh, Andrew Marshall was very uh, effective in in propagating the convergence of the decisive technologies that made it possible to, uh, in in effect, uh, uh, defeat without firing a shot the Soviet forces arrayed in. In Central and Eastern Europe, by the convergence of the technologies of, of uh, precision navigation and, and uh, guidance with uh, persistent surveillance, it enabled uh, the U.S. and NATO forces to completely expose the second and third echelon Soviet forces to destruction, and uh, that contributed to uh, uh, the ability of uh, President Reagan and President Bush to wind up the Cold War uh, w without uh, uh, the kind of warfare we had constituted. But now we're in a, a new environment post-Cold War where uh, the Defense Science Board has done several studies on this problem where the technology of uh, modern warfare is now more or less universally available. That is, almost any country can get hold of this uh, technology. And uh, uh, as Admiral Cota su uh, suggests, uh, while China is perhaps the most uh, uh, powerful exponent of uh, the use of uh, this uh, universally available technology for um, 
uh, military purposes. Other countries are doing this, the same thing, perhaps on a different scale, including uh, Iran and uh, North Korea. And Russia is adapting its own uh, 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 tactics and operations to, to the opportunities created by access to these technologies. So uh, the, the need of, uh, is to find a constructive way in which we can defeat these uh, technologies uh, along the lines of uh, the remarks that Admiral Cota uh, mentioned, and, and so the third offset reflects uh, an effort to uh, to do so. Uh, well, um, I'm not sure I have much uh, interesting to say after Admiral Cota and Dr. Schneider, but uh, let me give you uh, sort of my twist on, on the issue. Um, first, I, I think uh, third offset strategy is, is uh, Dr. Schneider says, a nice term. But at the core, what we're talking about is strategy. And we all know the, the basic definition of strategy, how you employ limited means to achieve the ends that you, you seek. Um, but if you dig a little deeper, you see that strategy is also about, at its core really, identifying, developing, and exploiting advantages. Uh, against your adversary, while at the same time recognizing those advantages that you have that are becoming what was called in the early days of the Cold War, wasting assets, those advantages that are fading away. And your adversary is constantly trying to make your advantages wasting assets and develop new advantages of their own. And there's this constant competition that goes on. And as was mentioned by Dr. Schneider, we had this enormous advantage uh, after World War II. We had a nuclear monopoly. Uh, that became a wasting asset when the uh, Russians tested their nuclear weapon in August of 1949. We were confronted with a strategic choice, what to do about it. And the choice was, do we build up our conventional forces? Uh, in the Lisbon Conference in NATO in 1952, there was a commitment to build up a force of 90 divisions, uh, which sounds fantastic uh, these days when you look back at it. Uh, President Eisenhower, uh, after elected, said, uh, this is going to be a, a long-term competition. We don't, we don't know when this competition with the Russians is going to end. Uh, and uh, he made a strategic choice. He said, uh, in a long-term competition, uh, an important source of advantage for us will be uh, the industrial base and the economic base of the, the countries of the free world. That's how we'll prevail in this long-term competition. And so he said, what we're going to do is we're going to ride this wasting asset, this nuclear advantage we have, as long as we can to allow the Europeans and our Japanese allies to rebuild their economies, rebuild their technological bases. And in fact, uh, that, uh, that strategy worked uh, in the sense that uh, it, it succeeded in rebuilding these economies, rebuilding these uh, te technical bases. Uh, until about the 1970s, when not only did the Russians, as Dr. Schneider said, have a, a manpower advantage, uh, conventional forces advantage in Europe, uh, but it also caught up, caught up to us in terms of nuclear capability. And uh, those of us who were around then remember all this, you know, malaise and you know, what are we going to do, hand-wringing. Uh, and there were a number of people in the Pentagon that looked for uh, another offset, another source of advantage. 
And they found it in basically a technology. They found it in information technology. The United States and the rest of the advanced industrial economies were shifting from an industrial base to an industrial information hybrid based economy. And this was something Soviet Russia didn't seem to be able to do. I was buying Sony television sets and Hewlett Packard pocket calculators. I wasn't buying any that were made in Soviet Russia and neither were you. And people like Harold Brown and William Perry and Andrew Marshall saw the potential here as a new source of advantage, a new source of competitive advantage. And as Dr. Schneider said, you could apply this advantage in a lot of ways. And as Admiral Cota said, we used it in terms of SDI to lay the groundwork for the original battle networks. We used it in submarine quieting. We used it in precision navigation and timing. We used it in precision guided weapons. We used it in developing stealth technology. There were a lot of ways we could leverage this advantage. And this advantage paved the way for what some people call the revolution in military affairs in the 1990s. The advent of American battle networks combined with precision weaponry. But as in the case of the first two areas of major advantage, this advantage is now becoming a wasting asset, as both the Admiral and the Doctor have said. China's development of these capabilities with Chinese characteristics, if you will. And so the question is, well, if that's the case, if now our dominance in battle networks and precision warfare is becoming a wasting asset, or at least being offset by the Chinese, where do we go next? And I would argue that the, and I think echoing Dr. Schneider here, I don't think the answer is found in the 1950s or the 1970s. I think the answer is found in the 1920s and the 1930s. As Dr. Schneider said, a lot of the technologies, and of course militaries over time are becoming more capital intensive. And if you look at these shifts, to a great extent they're technology driven, or technology is a key component. And so in the 1920s and 30s you had these commonly available technologies. The commercial sector was really driving a lot of what was going on. The automotive industry and mechanization, the aviation industry, radio. Now the military takes some of this and adapts it, so radio becomes not only radio for the military, but it becomes radar, for example. And the question is, what differentiated the militaries that got it right in that period from those that got it wrong? I mean, after all, technology is widely available. And as Dr. Schneider and Admiral Cota said, it's widely available today. Where is artificial intelligence advancing? Where is big data? Where is robotics? Where is nanotechnology? Where are the biosciences? It's not occurring in Los Alamos. It's occurring out in the commercial sector. Now, we can refine it and adapt it. But just as in the 1920s and 30s, the keys, I would say there were three keys in terms of who wins and who loses. The first one was identifying what are you trying to do? What is your purpose? And so the purpose of Germany was to win a quick war against Poland and France. The purpose of Britain, to a great extent, was to defend itself from strategic aerial attack. So different problems for different countries, different objectives. And 
what uh, what differentiated them was number one, you know, trying to identifying what you're trying to do. And I would say today, what we're trying to do uh, in terms of the U.S.-Japan alliance is defend the first island chain. You know, deter China from acts of aggression and coercion against the first island chain. Uh, and if you don't know what you're going to do, then it's very hard to uh, you know, to leverage technology uh, in a way that makes it most effective. Uh, so, uh, for example, the, the German military leverages aviation, mechanization, and radio to create Blitzkrieg. Uh, the American and Japanese navies uh, take some of that same technology uh, and build their fast carrier uh, task forces, uh, long-range radio, radar, aviation, and so on, uh, because they have a different objective and they are operating in a different domain. Uh, and so, number one is, what are you trying to do? Second is figuring out the operational concept. Uh, how are you going to employ this technology to maximum effectiveness? Uh, and again, uh, you see, uh, you know, a great example that the Americans use is uh, the French Army and the German Army. Both have tanks, both have radios, you know, uh, both have aircraft, but the Germans figure out how to put them together uh, in the best way possible. And the third is time. Who can do it faster? Who figures out the, the new way of war first? Because whoever figures it out first has a decisive advantage, uh, which is why the, the British Navy doesn't perform particularly well in the Pacific War, whereas the Japanese and the American navies perform at a very high level. Uh, so the third is, is time. Who, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very much a time-based competition. And I think, as Dr. Schneider said, this isn't something that, uh, you know, the term third offset strategy may go away, but as our old Soviet rivals would say, there's a certain objective reality here. Uh, you know, th this is not dependent upon a Pentagon slogan. This is dependent upon what we've seen and experienced in the past. And so for me, uh, whether the name changes or not, uh, the challenge uh, for us is going to remain. And whether or not we succeed uh, will depend, I think, on these three factors. Thank you. Uh, uh, these are very uh, uh, important remarks, especially uh, the part about uh, strategy and the uh, uh, vital uh, uh, dimension that that imposes on trying to uh, figure out the best way to, to use our uh, access to these technologies. But one of the other dimensions I think is uh, uh, very important at uh, subsidiary level is a recognition that uh, advanced technologies such as we've been discussing and, and technologies that are now being introduced is that the, uh, their importance is uh, uh, particularly profound with respect to the creation of new concepts of operation. Uh, the, uh, uh, we've discussed, for example, the uh, uh, application of uh, unmanned underwater vehicles and, and uh, the possibility of the seabed becoming uh, much more uh, transparent with a highly instrumented seabed. Well, that will create a requirement for much different concepts of operation than uh, we have uh, heretofore been uh, uh, become accustomed. And, and for this, we need a, a very uh, uh, creative uh, 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 defense establishment, including especially the officer corps, that are able to adapt quickly to these kinds of uh, operations. And uh, I, I think that is uh, something that's sometimes given too little 
um, attention with the preoccupation uh, with the uh, technology, as Mr. Krivenow just said. There's many different ways in which the technologies can be applied, and it's it's only th uh, through the shaping of concepts of operation that are uh, related to supporting a constructive strategy that, that the technology really makes a difference. And I, th I think this is something that we will need to, to take advantage of because the nature of the technologies that are, are uh, on offer are moving much more rapidly than the uh, experience we've had even in the 20s and 30s, although the technology was moving rapidly. A number of the uh, enabling technologies for these advanced military capabilities are uh, advancing at exponential rates, and it's sometimes it's hard to get your head straight on uh, the phenomena of ex exponential rates, but if you think of... Um, um, taking a, a step of uh, one meter each and uh, do that for 32 times, you've gone 32 meters. But if uh, technology is ad advancing uh, in, th in 32 uh, increments of that sort exponentially, you're up to a billion. So uh, almost any technology that has the property that it can be converted to information has the property that it then can become software and is vulnerable to much more rapid uh, uh, technological change. So the, the idea of a system having a 40-year life is probably uh, uh, obsolete in the sense that the underlying technologies that drive it are not hardware, they're algorithms. And those uh, the, the algorithmic um, evolution of uh, uh, military equipment is going to move much more rapidly than uh, we have previously been discussed. That will create different capabilities and a need for changes in concepts of operation to enable us uh, a country, or in this case, we're discussing today an alliance. But it also has... A, industrial implications as well. How do we do we cooperate when the underlying technologies are moving very quickly? Uh, you need a, a kind of uh, industrial organization that allows com companies to go in and out of uh, various markets, perhaps to uh, you, uh, need to be more flexible with having companies fail uh, simply because the technology change uh, uh, imposes demands uh, to, to respond that cannot often be done with the same organization. So there's a lot of things that need to be thought through on, on how we can manage uh, a, a really collaborative scientific and industrial uh, opportunity that is created by these new technologies. I would just uh, add to that, uh, again, using uh, history as an example. Um, everyone in the 20s and 30s knew that aviation was a new and important thing. And the question was how new and how important. And there was a great struggle in uh, our Navy, uh, the Navy I'm more familiar with. Uh, and early on, uh, what planes could do uh, was to help the battle line uh, get into position uh, by scouting where the enemy fleet was. And the idea was you wanted to cross their T. That was the phrase that was used to maximize your firepower. And so planes were very useful in going out a distance and scouting hoping you get in position. And of course, uh, then you wanted to keep their planes from scouting your fleet, so you wanted to shoot down their planes. But at some point, uh, both the American and the Japanese navies realized that you can use these planes for raids on airfields. 
Uh, of course, uh, we all remember that. Um, and in fact, our own Navy uh, was very much involved in developing those capabilities. Uh, but there was a transition point, and uh, the Navy's said, look, uh, yeah, these all help our, our battleships, our battle fleet. But at some point, if aircraft can fly a, a very long distance and carry a very heavy payload, they can sink these ships. And it's not a matter of positioning our battle line. The whole thing changes. And, of course, that led to the end of the battleship and the rise of the aircraft carrier and the submarine. If you look at things today, and again, all within the context of what are we trying to do, as Admiral Coda outlined for us, um, I've had senior naval officers say to me, uh, is the follow-on to the Virginia-class attack submarine a much improved version of what we have, or is it something very different? Uh, is the next uh, attack submarine uh, more like what we think of an aircraft carrier today? Uh, a rather large ship, but one that doesn't do the attacking itself, one that launches the way a carrier launches aircraft, launches unmanned underwater vehicles. Well, just as, you know, when, when did the transition occur with aircraft in the 20s and 30s? When does the transition in terms of unmanned underwater vehicles occur now? They have something to do with propulsion systems or the ability to refuel, um, to allow them to travel great distances, uh, nanotechnologies, uh, the ability to carry heavy payloads, uh, the fusing of, of unmanned underwater systems technology with smart mines. I and mean, if you think about mines becoming smarter, smarter, smarter mines, mobile smart mines, they start to look alike, uh, a lot like unmanned underwater vehicles. So as Dr. Schneider said, there's so much, so many different technologies moving forward on so many different fronts at such a rate of speed that it really requires very, uh, serious, sustained intellectual effort uh, built around not only the technology, but how can you leverage it and what are you trying to do? You know, what is the ultimate political purpose for this military capability that we are trying to build? Um, we, <clears throat> we're going to want to move smartly onto our panel at 1030, but we do have some time for questions, uh, including mine, which I'm going to pose first. As, uh, as moderator, I, I, I claim that privilege. As both of you know, there is uh, a feeling in DOD that the third offset strategy sits in, shall we say, uneasy relation with the way in which DOD thinks about its existing conventional forces. Our new president, our president-elect, has made it his motto, peace through strength, and he has clearly been thinking about this along the lines of building and increasing are both spending and also production levels in terms of conventional weaponry, uh, ships, for example, the 350-ship Navy and so on. If you were advising President Trump, President-elect Trump, on how to think about third offset strategy in relationship to existing conventional forces, what would you say to him? I'll put this to both of you. I think the third offset uh, technologies that we have been discussing, uh, uh, like un unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, artificial intelligence, and so forth, can actually extend the life of, of existing uh, systems. Uh, fourth generation aircraft like F-15s and F-16s, if accompanied by um, swarms of unmanned aerial vehicles, for example, that, that are uh, able to operate autonomously, uh, uh, can extend the, 
the life of these platforms so that the the um, evolution of military capabilities and and the application of military power and support of a particular strategy can uh, can survive with a mix of existing uh, uh, systems evolved using this for want of a better term third offset uh, uh, technology as we introduce new capabilities that are, that are built around uh, uh, entirely new concepts of operations using technologies that are uh, becoming available that can be applied for military applications. Uh, I would, uh, I guess by elevator speech, uh, would be that we have built a military uh, that is very advanced uh, but is used to operating in an environment that is passing from the scene, uh, what the military calls a permissive environment. Nobody really goes after our muscle. Uh, nobody really goes after our nervous system. We, we get to have that as, as sort of out of bounds. Well, the Chinese are putting it in play. Um, so that would be my, my first point. My, my second point would be, uh, I think, of the three revisionist powers, China, in any way you want to calculate it, is the, uh, the most dangerous. And we've talked about uh, rebalancing uh, to the Western Pacific, but that is really a hollow phrase. Again, what are we trying to do? Uh, and we're trying to do uh, whatever we're trying to do. And again, I, I assume it's, it's defend our position, maintain the balance of power, deter the Chinese from aggression or coercion. How are we trying to do it? Uh, can we defend the first island chain, which I uh, would say at the core is Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines? Uh, do we intend to do it with forward defense, uh, with, reinf with reinforcements, as the uh, Admiral says, um, uh, with expeditionary forces? Uh, do we intend to fight the way we fought in World War II, which is mobilization? We lose uh, the first island chain, but we take it back at some point. I don't think our allies would be too happy to hear that uh, particular posture. Uh, there are some who talk about an offset strategy, uh, excuse me, uh, an off, uh, was it, uh, an offshore strategy, uh, which essentially is blockade. Uh, but again, I think that risks giving up the first island chain to get it back. But depending upon how you answer this and depending upon what kind of military postures you want to pursue, you get different answers about the kind of military that you need to have. And we haven't done the hard, upfront thinking about this that we need to do. Uh, we've been sort of going on what the Pentagon calls program momentum. If it's in, you know if it's in there, well, I guess we should be building it. Uh, but I think if we took a good hard look along the lines I've described, we could end up getting some significantly different answers. Now for questions, there was one down here in the front. If you could just give me, give us your name and also affiliation, that would be great. Phyllis Yoshida, Sasakawa Peace Foundation, USA. Uh, just last week I was sitting at the U.S. Council on Competitiveness and we were talking about the exponential changes in technology and what implications that had for the workforce keeping up with it for U.S. competitiveness. So what thoughts have you all given to whether it be the industrial workforce that's having to make these things or the military workforce in terms of being able to implement and stay abreast of that exponential change? The uh, uh, military uh, establishment has a has a pretty good um, uh, track record of of training. 
people uh, at all levels, officer, enlisted, and uh, civilian, to uh, to keep up with uh, changes in technology. The, uh, the civil sector has done uh, less well, and there's I know a lot of ferment about uh, apprenticeship programs and and uh, other kinds of training. We probably need to do something differently than we've done in the past in order to keep up with it, because the change is is much more rapid. But uh, I believe also the uh, ability to train people is much improved if we take advantage of it. Uh, I'm not sure I'll be answering your question properly. Dr. Schneider knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, I would just say, again, from a strategy point of view, uh, one thing that we have ignored uh, that our Chinese uh, friends have not uh, in, in the mid-90s, I think it was General Huang Bin at their uh, military uh, college uh, made a statement, uh, uh, the Americans cannot fight a long war, uh, and uh, we will win a long war. Uh, even though their their doctrine and what they would prefer to do is, is to win a short, sharp victory. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we spent a lot of time and effort during the Cold War making sure that the Soviets knew we could fight uh, and prevail in a long war. Uh, we've given up on that. And a big part of what we've ignored, I think, in that is, are things like strategic material stockpiles, uh, whether our industrial base can surge production, uh, you can't search production of a Ford-class carrier. So, okay, uh, but you can search production of, of other things, potentially, like precision-guided munitions. So uh, have we thought about, you know, what kind of posture we need to be in in order to convince the Chinese that, in fact, uh, you know, again, no, no matter how they're thinking about it, aggression and coercion are, are not in their interest. Thank you very much, our panelists, Andrew Krepinevich and Dr. Schneider. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for giving us some ideas about not only where this third offset strategy has come from, but where it's going. Appreciate it very thank much. You. Thank you. Um, I think what we'll do is take a quick, I mean, quick break, um, and we'll reassemble here for uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Okazono and, and our next panel at 10.35 exactly. <laughs>